You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in again today. Hey, if you're a new listener, welcome. This is where we talk about what's going on in the economy, what's going on this week especially in politics, and what's going on in the markets and how you and your money might be affected. If you are a new listener or you are a returning listener and you don't yet have the RLA app downloaded to your mobile device, you can go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and at that site you can get our weekly market update webinar replays, you can get the weekly podcast version of this radio program and you'll also get our weekly newsletter portfolio watch and uh, you can get those resources on that site. You can also download the app and uh, get those uh, resources delivered right to your mobile device. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that uh, we had an election this past week, which uh, obviously everyone is aware of, and it appears as I am recording this on Friday afternoon that uh, the outcome of the election is still to be determined. There is uh, uh, certainly going to be a lot of ongoing uh, litigation related to this election as well. Of course, as an inquiring person, I wonder why in the age of blockchain technology, in the age of computers and telephones, that we still are using mail-in paper ballots when there are so many other alternatives that we could use that would make the United States election process not be so inept and appear to be so inept uh, all around the world. So why do we use paper ballots? Why are we doing this? Well, I am reminded of what Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of the Sherlock Holmes character, once said. He said that, As you think about things, the first thing you want to do is eliminate the impossible. Then you'll be left with the truth. I will leave it at that because the outcome of this election will certainly potentially change some of the policies that will affect you and your money. And in this segment, I want to talk to you about one of the policies that likely will not change. That is the policy of quantitative easing or money printing by the Federal Reserve. Now, again, if you're a new listener, the Federal Reserve is the central bank of the United States, and the central bank of the United States is comprised of a private group of bankers, a private group of corporations. That surprises many people when I talk about that, but 107 years ago nearly, in December of 1913, then-President Woodrow Wilson signed into law the Federal Reserve Act. That gave private bankers control of monetary policy. Now, since the beginning of the year, according to Alistair McLeod, a past guest here on the program, over a period of 30 weeks, the money supply expanded by 65%. And if you compare that to the money supply increase from 1970 or excuse me from 2008 until the beginning of 2020, you saw an average increase annually of between 9 and 10%. So we have had significant amounts of money printing taking place 
And Ray Dalio said this. Ray is a billionaire, uh, founder of Bridgewater Associates. He is a hedge fund manager. He said this, large government deficits exist and will almost certainly increase substantially, which will require huge amounts of more debt to be sold by governments, amounts that cannot naturally be absorbed without driving up interest rates at a time when interest rate rise would be devastating for markets and economies because the world is so leveraged long. See, there's already a lot of debt that exists. And if you're a lender and you're going to loan money to someone who's already up to their neck in debt, to use that expression, there's certainly a much higher loan risk than someone who has no debt. So certainly if you're going to loan them money, there's a lot more risk involved in loaning them money. And in order to compensate you for that risk, you're probably going to want to have a higher interest rate attached to the loan. Well, it's impossible, as I'll talk about with my guest in the next segment, Mr. David Skarika, it's impossible to finance the level that exists in the United States at interest rates that would be more normal. It would literally bankrupt the country. And yet, they're talking about more spending. In fact, this past week, Jerome Powell, who is the current chair of the Federal Reserve, said this. He said that the support provided by the $2.2 trillion CARES Act, which was passed back in March, he said it was absolutely essential in supporting the recovery that we've seen so far, which has generally exceeded expectations, which is true. But he said further support is likely to be needed. My question is this. Assuming there is more support, assuming there is more stimulus, where will the money come from? The federal budget deficit soared to a record $3.1 trillion in 2020. The federal government spent $6.55 trillion. Tax receipts and other revenue were $3.42 trillion for a $3.1 trillion deficit. That is a record by a long shot. Now, the Fed is creating money to fund this deficit, and my point is this, and here's how this affects you. Regardless of the outcome of the election, this policy is very unlikely to change. And money creation causes eventually inflation, or at least pockets of inflation where demand exists. Money creation is a tax on savers and investors. Because as the dollar buys less, and we saw the dollar take a pretty big hit last week, as the dollar buys less, so does your savings, and so do your investments, and so does your nest egg, and it makes it more difficult for you to retire. In the best-selling book, Revenue Sourcing, that was released earlier this year, I talked about the fact that there are strategies that you can consider to help you overcome this near-certain risk, in my view. Now, again, if you'd like to get more information uh, or learn how to get more resources, I would encourage you to visit the website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. You can also, at that website, Download the app, as I mentioned at the outset, 
and the app will give you access to all our resources. So the question is this, how long will the money printing continue? And the answer to that is, I don't know. However, one of my favorite economists was the late economist Herbert Stein. He said, if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. If you've been a long-time listener to the program, you, you have heard me use that quote before. If something cannot go on forever, it will stop. Those words are as simple as they are profound. To do planning, you have to make sure that the planning is done before it stops. You have to make sure that you're safe before it happens. And that's why I'd encourage you to visit the website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, to get more information. You can also, as I said, download the app there. I will be back after these words with this week's special guest, Mr. David Skarika. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again on today's program is my guest, uh, Mr. Dave Skarika. Uh, Dave uh, is the publisher of the newsletter Addicted to Profits. You can learn more at addictedtoprofits.net. And hey, Dave, welcome back to the program. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, you're in this very interesting time. <laughs> well, yeah, as we're, as we're recording this, uh, uh, we are uh, waiting to see the results of the U.S. election. It seems like there are uh, there's just a lot of crazy stuff going on, and uh, certainly uh, uh, we could talk for multiple shows about that. But uh, what do you think that does to the markets? Um, I, I just think you know, right, you know, right now we kind of saw this knee jerk where the markets rallied, and you just look at let's just take the results at face value right now, regardless of what happens in the next month or two in terms of litigation and the whatnot, it essentially looks like, you know, you abide in the presidency. But the one upset that looked like happened is that the Republicans will retain the Senate. So that kind of gives you gridlock. And you remember, like, um, the, like I don't, I'm not an overly political person, but in terms of, but I am, I, I, I like, like, like fundamentally in my belief system, I'm a libertarian. So, you know, the, 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 um, the Democrats were looking at, you know, raising capital gains taxes and taxes, and they would have done a lot of fiscal stimulus, which would have helped certain areas of the economy. But I think in terms of the stock market, you know, obviously by raising taxes, that might have um, hurt it a bit because, you know, you're going to have a much higher capital gains tax, right? And you might want to lock in your gains now. But now with kind of the Republicans in the Senate, maybe you don't have the fiscal stimulus, but you do have, you know, you don't have the large tax increases, like maybe in a few years, uh, they just let the tax cuts by Trump roll back, but you're not talking about these, you know, draconian measures to the tax code and the whatnot. Now, just so you know, longer term, I think something's going to have it happen here. Even though I'm a libertarian, I'm also a realist. With the national debt now 27 trillion, and the debt to GDP at all levels of government north of 150 percent of GDP, um, you're going to have to probably have higher taxes. And I probably, you know, kind of similar taxes that we see. I'm Canadian. Um, you know, like they see in Canada or Western Europe are going to happen to happen in the states because they're going to have to raise revenue to basically close this budget gap at some point, right? So, and I don't care how low rates are, even if you're paying almost no interest on it, you like Japan, I think, pays 15 or 20 percent of its government revenue and in interest payments because you know their debt's 250 percent of GDP. 
even though they have zero rates because just the debt level is so high. So I just think that at some point you're going to have to see that happen anyhow. But in the short term, which, you know, the market, they always say looks out, you know, whatever, six months, nine months. Uh, that doesn't look like it's going to happen. But I think on the other side, I think other markets are kind of more interesting. Um, you know, you've seen this kind of really big dump in the dollar. The dollar is starting to break down. A lot of foreign currencies, uh, Canadian dollar, Australian dollar, um, uh, euro are all starting to break out against the dollars. And of course, you could say that Bitcoin and gold and precious metals are their own currencies. They're looking, like they're moving higher and looking to break out too. So it looks like what's happening is I think this kind of ineptitude in the political system in the U.S., which by the way has not been going on for years, not just the election. Maybe this election has been nailed in the coffin for it, for it, or the most extreme example is kind of, I think, having people lose faith in the U.S. dollars, and you look at all this debt that's been issued, if you take the foreign ownership of debt as a percentage of total debt, yeah, foreign ownership in nominal terms has gone higher because, you know, people are buying U.S. debt because, um, um, uh, you, know, you know, just because there's so much being issued, but there's so much being issued, too, their, their actual total ownership as the, as the total amount is going down. So that's also, to me, um, you know, I think it's actually something like a 10 or 20 year low. So that to me is also signaling a loss of faith in the U.S. dollar. Uh, but, you know, it, and I think we're going to see more of that going forward. And remember, a lot. And one thing about that fiscal stimulus, even though it's a libertarian, I'm not a huge fan of blowing up the debt more. But short term, it does increase GDP growth. And what you know, a lot of times these foreign currencies will outperform the dollar because they're expected that their economies are outperform. And it doesn't look like, to me, in terms of economic performance, the U.S. is going to do much better than Canada or Europe or and most of the countries in Western Europe are definitely going to underperform places like in Asia. So I think that could also be leading to this kind of weakness in the dollar. One thing about the election, what I found interesting, is not just all this, this stuff going on with the votes, but during the debates, during the campaign, during everything, I never heard the debt and deficit mentioned once. Remember when Ross Perot ran in the nineties, that was one of his main, the main um, uh, platitudes he ran on was, you know, the debt and deficit were out of control and the country was going to go broke. And, you know, back then <laughs> the debt and deficit was a few trillion. Now we're getting close to, to, you know, 30 trillion and no one is even talking about it. And I think cause people have been lulled into complacency because of these low rates. So you're not seeing it. Um, you know, hit the bottom line uh, of the of the government finances yet? Because the, the the simple scenario is this: okay, the debt and deficit are up tenfold in the last twenty to thirty years, right? But rates, for example, from you know forty years from the early eighties, are down from fifteen to you know half a percent. So if your debt goes up tenfold, but the rates go down ninety percent you're actually essentially paying the same amount of interest in nominal terms. Of course, the economy is much bigger now. So, you know, it's not really, you know, interest eating up your whole budget is basically how countries go bankrupt and go into, you know, um, uh, a bankruptcy. That's essentially what happened to the Weimar Republic or, you know, what's happening in Venezuela. So that's, 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 what happening. But, but now with these ultra low rates, it's not being felt yet. But like I said, there is some point, where there is a tipping point, or even if you have these ultra-low rates, the debt gets so large, even at low rates, 
the interest payments start, uh, you know, squeezing into the budget. And remember, that will be happening in the next five to ten years while the baby boomers are retiring and outlays are increasing too. So that's another thing is that the structural deficit, meaning that the deficit you're going to have like every year, not just because of some stimulus because of a coronavirus, is going to get larger. And that essentially will, again, uh, continue to increase the debt. And again, like um, Europe has in Canada, you know, Western world has similar problems, but places like Asia do not because they don't have a baby boom. They don't have government pensions um, on mass like we do in the West. So I, I really think that, you know, and I've been I, I started talking about this in the late 90s when I first started out. And it did happen, you know, from about uh, 2000 to 2011, where the emerging markets uh, outperformed. And, you know, they've underperformed the last 10 years. But I think we're going to see another 10 to 20 year period where emerging markets begin to outperform. So, David, you, you know, to go back and talk about the relationship between the dollar and GDP, um, I just read a piece on this by Alistair McLeod, and I found it fascinating. You know, since GDP is measured in U.S. dollars, uh, the argument that he makes is that, you know, are, are we really getting GDP expansion? Because when you measure GDP in terms of gold, you get a completely different picture. Um, what would you say about that? What would your reaction be? I, I would say that's the truth, because another thing, too, is, you know, you've got um, real GDP growth as well, right? Because after inflation and if gold and commodities are, are you know, the U.S. dollar is going down against other currencies, which increase import costs, which is inflationary as well. If if inflation is going higher and is really at five or six percent, you know, not at two percent and you're growing at two, three percent, are you really growing at all? Right. So and then and then the pop, there's other things like population growth that all factors in as well. So, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I would say that if if you're getting, you know, these these foreign currencies and these signs of inflation going higher, you're not really growing as much as you as you um, as you think you are. And look, at, I think that's kind of seen like, look, we can all look around. You know, you live in Michigan. I'm from a town called Hamilton, which is kind of um, a, you know, a depressed steel town. Like Hamilton's basically the Detroit, you know, of of, of Canada, or was it's had a, a resurgence recently. But and and it's like you can look around and see that hey, you know, 30 years ago, I don't care what the GDP per capita was or GDP was, yeah, or what the rates were a lot higher, but people just seem to have more money, you know, like more money for vacations, more money to go spend on like, I don't know, a pair of shoes or sneaker or tennis racket. That seems to me that people had much more disposable income. And that might in itself, just like looking, kind of doing the eye test might be the most simple kind of example of that, that people didn't have to get into debt to buy big ticket items or luxury items. And now they do. And cause you know, partly cause they can, cause debt is so cheap. So I would say, yeah, a lot of those GDP numbers, for lack of a better term, are BS, and they don't really represent people's standard of living or, or you know, their you know their day to day costs. You know. Yeah, well, and BS is a highly technical financial term, so we all understand that. <laughs> so, David, yeah. let me let me jump in here in the in the three and a half or four minutes or so that we have left here. Uh, you know. Powell, the chair of the, the U.S. Federal Reserve, has pretty much come out and said we need more stimulus, which, you know, is basically him blatantly saying we need to print more money. Uh, it seems like we're going down that road. And, you know, Herbert Stein, the late economist, said that if something can not go on forever, it will stop. And certainly money printing, I would think, fits in that category. 
What do you think the end game looks like here? How does it stop, and how will our listeners potentially be affected? I think the end game is the Bond vigilantes. Um, I know that no one thinks that can happen anymore. They think that, uh, you know, central banks can do like, you know, MMT and just keep rates depressed and basically uh, subsidize all this government spending. But what I think what makes uh, the U.S. different, um, and I'll give an example, a historical example in a second, but say from Japan, that, and that's what the, that's that the excuse people, or sorry, the example people use, oh, Japan has had this, you know, debt going on for 20 years now, 30 years now, and, but, you know, if you look at the makeup of the Japanese, first of all, their society, you know, we're seeing all this instability socially and economically and politically in the States. The Japanese really don't have that. You know, they're very stable um, kind of society on a social level. And then they own all their own debt. Like the Japanese debt is all domestic owned, right? Where the U.S., I said that percentage is going down, but still got 40 percent of its debt owned by foreign governments, foreign central banks, foreign investors, et cetera. So I think at some point they could be inclined to dump because they might say, hey, Wait, you don't look at the political system right now. They might say, "Hey, we're not supporting this dysfunctional system any longer, right? We're not, we're not doing this any longer, right?" It's kind of like you know, when Rome got dysfunctional, people refused to pay their taxes to support like a corrupt you know, central government in Rome. And another example I'll give is after World War One, you know, the, the UK was a superpower. Their debt exploded, and the world did subsidize it for about you know twenty to thirty years into World War Two. But then after they were really broke in World War II, you know, um, they had to get an emergency loan from the Americans after the war. And then if you remember in the Suez Canal crisis, the Americans basically threatened to dump that debt if the U.K. proceeded with, the, you know, with that transgression. And then that made the U.K. back out because that dumping of debt and spike in rates, crash in the pound would have basically sunk their economy. So I think at some point, it's essentially it's the return again of these form of bond vigilantes when you got the debt high enough um, where remember, like we don't need a big spike in rates. If, if essentially rates went normalized like three or four percent on the 10 year bond, which historically is extremely low, the government essentially would be broke at the federal level. So I think that if, if you're going to take at some point, this fiscal irresponsibility will like, you know, will be met with, like like skepticism and uh, threatening to do that. And then it doesn't matter. And then if the Fed has to buy, like, let's say, five trillion of bonds wants to you know, be dumped, what will happen is you'll totally debase the currency and you'll get super high inflation. Uh, and, and, you know, that's that. So I think the end game is essentially people running out of patient with the exponential uh, patience with the exponential growth in debt. I think that's that's kind of the end game. But the problem is we don't know what's going to happen. The classic example I use just to end off here is that in 1995, um, I, I bought a book. I was just starting out as a teenager, you know, getting interested in economics and finance and markets. And it was uh, by Harry Figge, and it was called Bankruptcy uh, 1995. And it was about how the debt was going out of control and the country was going to go bankrupt. And here we are 25 years later, and the debt is 10 times as high as it was back then. And we haven't seen any of that. So, the problem is these things always take longer than you think, but when they unravel, they unravel really quickly. You know. Well, to to show you uh, to show you my age, I have that book in my library as well. We are ch- we are chatting today with uh, Dave Skarika. His website is addictedtoprofits.net. Stay with us. I'll be back with Dave, and we'll talk some more after these words. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm Dennis Tubergen, your host. I'm chatting today 
with Dave Skarika. Dave is the publisher of the Addicted to Profits newsletter. His website is addictedtoprofits.net. And Dave, in the last segment, we were talking about the fact that, you know, the, the end game is that essentially uh, the Fed, the United States, prints so much currency that people say, look, uh, enough is enough. And that's happened many times historically. So that's got to be bullish for tangible assets, doesn't it? What's your take? Yeah, I think that like when you look at QE, people wonder why didn't why did QE did not you know, increase? Actually, you know, the last nine or ten years, we saw a decrease in the price of precious metals until the last year or so, and we saw decreases in the prices of um, most commodities. And actually, there's a great chart that shows commodities, you know, priced compared to the S&P, and they're almost as cheap as they've ever been. And people go, why all this printed money didn't? And I think it's, the answer is quite simple. And I think that simple answer is that actually, because that suppressed volatility, just put people into risk assets. People went back into housing. They went back into the financial markets. A lot of that printed money just went on banks' balance sheets. And, you know, they're involved in more of the financial community. So now that we're talking about more of an unraveling of the system, and, and you know, the, the government debt, I always use the quote after the financial crisis, because you know, the government debts are so much higher now than they were in 2007, is that, you know, in 2008, the government's bailed everyone out, but then the next crisis, who's going to bail out the government? So I think we're looking at this macro kind of um, aspect going on, where it looks like more like this is going to be a sovereign problem rather than, you know, a private, uh, uh, you know, financial crisis at the, the bank or individual level. I think that just means the printed money this time will go more into these kind of commodity or inflation uh, um uh, hedge uh, instruments because people will see the massive debasement of the currency. So that means, you know, that it means um, your gold, silver, it's obviously my two favorite, especially because I do a lot in the junior miners, um, which have a lot of leverage. And, you know, especially if gold goes, you know, north of 2000 again, silver, um, north of 25, I think that's when you see the big leverage come into those. And then, you know, Bitcoin and cryptos would do well as a hedge. Uh, you know, um, uh, once you kind of get the shakeout in, um, in, in kind of the frackers and supply comes out the market, oil will probably begin to rise again. Um, you know, any, you know, um, even you know, the mixture of devaluation and stimulus probably help the base metals. Uh, agricultural prices are really depressed. So I think virtually all of these commodities kind of like what happened from 2000 to 2011 or like happened in um, uh, the mid thirties to, to, to just about the end of world war two or like happened in the seventies, you're going to see now this period where, you know, inflation assets do really well, you know, and, and I think this will be even more extreme because I think we're seeing the kind of demise of the superpower of the world and its currency. So that will even help that even more. And people don't realize that after the great depression ended, like the bad part of it, 1933, and until 1951, commodities soared in price, you know, cause partly because of demand, because of the war, a lot of money printing during the war. And obviously, part of the reason probably was too is because the British pound, which was the reserve currency, went down a lot and lost its reserve currency status. And as a lot of things were priced, priced in pounds in the 30s and 40s, you know, they, they would have gotten more expensive. So I think that's kind of what was scenario we're about to see here in the dollar, you know. So, Dave, let's talk about the relationship between the price of gold or the price of silver and uh, how mining shares in general, uh, as a group, collectively, 
um, relate to that? Yeah, so like you, you have more leverage in the mining shares because you have fixed costs, right? So the, the the quick example I like to give to people is if a mine's all-in cost, meaning putting in construction, then it's year-to-year cost, is $1,500. Well, at $1,500, it makes zero, or $1,501, it makes a dollar. But at 1900 all of a sudden it goes from making zero or a dollar to you know 400 So you can see the leverage there, and that would be leverage to the stock price. Of course, it works on the downside because if gold goes to 1200 then all of a sudden you're losing $300 for every you know ounce produced over the course of, uh, of the life of the, of the mine. So um, so they have leverage in that regard. And see, what makes the junior miners so leveraged, and the reason I like to use them, on top of you get private placements and you can have warrants, which yeah, you know, basically give you the right to buy more stocks, or um, that sort of thing, is that if you have a, a – it's just, again, simple math. If you're, say, a large gold company, you've got 20 million ounces in the ground, well, you find a million-ounce deposit, that only increases your, you know, your, your asset base by 5%. Well, if you're a little junior miner that just got a couple hundred thousand ounces of ground, you have a big find and you find a couple million, well, you've, you've increased you know, your asset tenfold, plus the value of that asset in the ground is going up you know, as gold rises in price. So that make, makes them like hyper leverage. And a lot of these companies have very small market caps you know, in the tens of millions. And, and um, again, it's a lot easier for, say, a 20 or $30 million company to, say, go to be worth $500 million with some uh, exceptional news than it is for, like, a $2 billion company to be worth $10 billion, right? So um, that, that's why I like them, just the, the, the small size of them, um, the fact that, yeah, they're, they're financed mostly with equity, so you get these warrants attached to them. Um, with me personally, I've been in that industry for over 20 years, so I know a lot of good, solid management. So I have history of finding mines and, and putting them into production or selling them to majors. So I think that is why I like them in, in, in kind of um, uh, bull markets. And because I kind of know the industry as well, I have the opportunity to get in a lot of these things on the ground floor. So, like, you know, it's not like I'm getting into a junior deal after it's run up five or ten times and they have it. I'm, I'm looking to get into it right from the start. Now, not everyone is going to uh, work out. It's, there's a, you know, it's, a, it, it's, it's a very risky sector. But usually if you're going to do five, ten, fifteen of these deals and you know the people behind them, in the long term it will pan out. So, Dave, let's uh, just talk a little bit about your forecast for – gold and silver. There seems to be no end in sight, as we talked about, to the Fed's uh, money printing policies. So um, is it a fair question to say, where, where do you see this going, you know, in the near term, as far as the, the price of gold per ounce and the price of silver per ounce? Yeah, it's difficult to know, because you guys talk about the money money in circulation. I always like the Dow to gold ratio as a long-term deal. And like I think obviously the market is overvalued. We could see a decline, but again, because of inflation, I don't know if we'll see one of these 70, 80 or percent bear markets like we saw in the NASDAQ in the 2000s or the Dow in 29 or even the financial crisis and the market fell over 50%. But we could see a 20 to 30% drop fall, you know, mixed with huge inflation, which in real terms makes it go down a lot. So let's say the market, the Dow ends up around trading around 20 well, if you look at that one-to-one ratio, you know, where these things usually end in the gold precious metal market, that's, you know, 20000 for gold, maybe 10000 whatever it may be. That's 
think that's a pretty fair price based on the amount of money being printed, the amount of, you know, you know, you know, the debt being run up. I remember with the deficits, I'll end on this note, and this is why I think gold can go so high. Even if they don't do a stimulus, the tax base has been decimated. The amount of money that they have to spend is now higher because there's more people on benefits. Baby boomers are retiring, so that makes Medicare, I'm sorry, Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security expenses all higher. That increases the structural deficit probably to between one and two trillion a year. So the Fed is going to have to probably, you know, monetize that, you no, know, even without some kind of stimulus, right? So that's why I'm so bullish because if you're going to run the one to two trillion a year deficit for whatever the next four, eight, twelve years, it's kind of hard to see gold going down and there's no political will you know in the states to do that because even let's face it from a fiscal standpoint the republicans have been just as bad if not worse than the democrats you know (laughs) so nobody wants to cut spending because that loses you you know the elections but if everything plays out like i say and these debts blow up probably the government be forced to um at some point but yeah with, with the kind of this uncontrollable debt out of control um i don't really see how you know this is going to really stop anytime soon and i just think even with the um the the senate being if it is controlled by the republicans even even then i still think they'll have to make some kind of deal on a stimulus anyhow and it might not be as big but you're still going to get more money printing more spending bigger debt etc so are you more bullish on gold or silver moving ahead? Uh, I'm still more bullish on silver because that gold to silver ratio is still roughly 80 to 1, which historically is a high level. And, you know, it, it was like a, over 100 to 1, which I think was an historical all-time high. And I think the median is like 60 to 1. And then, you know, in extremes, it's gotten down to like, you know, like when the Hunt brothers manipulated silver, it got down to 16 to 1. But I don't know if we'll get to that again because, like I said, silver got manipulated for a few months then. But, yeah, definitely getting down to 20 or 30 to 1 is definitely reasonable. So let's say it just goes to 40 to 1 just to be conservative. That essentially would mean that silver would go up twice as much as gold. So if you got a ten thousand dollar gold price for argument's sake, you know you'd get a you know um a, you know you'd get a you know whatever that that would be a two hundred and fifty dollar silver price, which again you do the quick math ten thousand that would be five x on gold, and it would be you know ten x on silver. So to what extent do you think uh, the the gold and silver price have have been manipulated? This is probably the last question we have time for. I mean, you had a, a major <laughs> firm just pay almost a billion dollars in fines to settle, you know, criminal and civil allegations that they were kind of rigging the silver market. Another big bank ha- happened think, a couple of years ago. What, what What's your take? I think they do that in everything. These banks are just, I think when we, when we look back at history, one of the things that caused all this, this kind of unrest we're see, seeing, this, this, this now political failure, was the biggest mistake ever was when they bailed out the banks. Because those are probably the most corrupt institutions on earth right now. And remember, they've gotten those penalties for, you know, um, uh, doing the LIBOR raids, doing MBS securities. Like, they always get penalties for everything. So, yeah, I think there's a form of manipulation in there. But I just think they do that with everything because they're basically corrupt. 
So um, I don't know if it's more manipulated than anything else. I, I think there might be an aspect in there because if gold and silver go up, it's a sign that the system, you know, we can see the system is, ha- is, is crumbling anyhow, but it's really a sign when they go higher because you can see some kind of tangible evidence of it through their prices, right? So I definitely think it plays a part, but I think the banks have got, you know, their hands in the cookie jar of so many things. It's not as big as people think because they're just, you know, they're, they're they're trying to, you know, scrub off points everywhere to, you know, to, to um, you know, um, um, uh, do, you know, uh, to, to make money. Like there's been, there's been bank fines where they've basically been working with international drug lords, right? You know, you know, to, to, to make money off of that trade. So the banks kind of have their um, their hands in a lot of things. And I think there is that somewhat going on. But like, let's call a spade a spade. We had a huge run in gold and silver prices into the summer. I actually I actually uh, informed my readers plus myself to, you know, to se- sell about 20 to 25 percent of our position in the summer awaiting this correction. I think now is the time to start reentering. But, you know, it was just a normal kind of technical consolidation and correction. So I think people do get a little carried away with the kind of, you know, the whole manipulation um, kind of scheme. And the banks are just, they got their dirty hands and almost everything. Um, uh, I'm a big Miami Vice fan, the show back in the 80s. And there's this one great scene where they go into a banker because, you know, they're trying to hunt down a drug dealer and, you know, the banks totally within the ends, you know, with the drug cartel and the speech the banker makes. It's like, I was like, I don't know who wrote that, but they definitely had some brains because the same, the same thing's happening 35 years later. Right. And, um, Eddie, that's all I'm trying to say is that the banks are in so many dirty businesses. It's almost like the mafia in a way. It's like the mafia has a lot of legitimate businesses too. Right. But they also, get involved in shady illegal stuff. And um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't stay up at night worried about manipulation, um, especially because now I think the system is kind of, you know, uh, losing control over the ability to do that. And I think the next shoe to drop is, like I said, we saw financial crisis. We saw, um, um, you know, this, and then the next, shoot a drop will probably be you know, the corona thing this year the political instability is probably when the governments uh f- fiscally cannot bail out everybody like they have these last two uh um uh, crises right so so um you know that's probably it you know and, and by the way that's going to be really bad because again when i go back to what i said earlier about the issue with them bailing everybody out at the banker level well that made the bankers even more corrupt even more above the law. And then because they got a bailout, everyone got a bailout, you know, during the Corona crisis. Now airlines, you know, people getting inflated unemployment checks, et cetera. And then now if in the next crisis, it's a government debt crisis, no one can get a bailout because the government won't be able to afford it. And with everyone expecting bailouts now, you know, it's kind of like anything, right? It's if it's you're at a job and you're making, I don't know, good money, 200 grand a year. And all of a sudden the company does bad and you're expecting that 200 grand a year. And, you, and they're like, Hey, we're still going to pay you 150, but we're struggling. You know, uh, um, um, losing that 50 hurts a lot more when you become accustomed to it, that the, the extra uh, positivity and the lifestyle gives you, et cetera. So that's, that's the issue I, I see here is that, you know, essentially 
we're going to see this next decline being the government decline, and then they can't bail everybody out when there's you know a negative uh, downturn in the economy. And it's the perfect example of this, the standoff, is back in the 18th century, when it was much more of a laissez-faire economy, when you had those banking crises and financial crises, no one expected a bailout. It was like you would go bankrupt, and that would be it, and you would have to start over again. And ever since kind of FDR started the New Deal, having the government more actively involved in the economy, now everybody expects government bailout. And what happens when you know the government can't? And we can see this in places like Venezuela or Argentina, where the government, because they've had so many of these crises, doesn't have the financial ability to bail everybody out. People, you know, starve. You know, there's high unemployment. You know, people leave the country. So that's going to be the kind of next shoe to drop. It's not exactly the most positive thing in the world. But again, it's the timing. Who knows? Like, could it happen quickly? You know, within the next four years, could I? Could it be like after 2008? No, after 2009, we had an 11-year expansion. Could could we have another 11-year expansion before that crisis starts? I don't know. You know. So it's, you know, that, that those are the things that are almost impossible to time. Well, the clock says, Dave, we're going to have to leave it there. My guest today has been Dave Skarika. His website is addictedtoprofits.net, and I will return after these words. Thanks. I'm Dennis Tubergen, and this is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Glad you decided to listen in today, and thanks again to my special guest, Mr. David Skarika, for joining us on today's program. You know, in the first segment of this program and during my conversation also with uh, Dave today, we talked about the fact that this money creation or money printing is likely going to continue. And one of the ways to protect yourself is to have some tangible assets in your portfolio. Now, again, I'd encourage you to go to the retirementlifestyleadvocates.com website. There's resources available there to help you sort through uh, all these options and apply them to your situation. And as I mentioned, you can also get the app there as well. But think about how the banking system currently works. Now, I have been of the opinion for a very long time that this system is a bad one and it at some point will have to break. And that's what we talked about during my interview with Dave Skarika today. But think about this central bank. This central bank creates money literally out of thin air. The member banks loan out that money. They collect interest. So they get back more of this newly created money than they loan out in the first place. This is a really good deal if you're a banker. However, if you're a consumer... It's not such a good deal. First of all, you're paying interest to a bank that has literally created money out of thin air. That's not a good system. Just think about it. And as more money is created now to fund all this deficit spending, if you're saving and investing and you're hoping to have a comfortable, secure retirement, that is another strong headwind. As this money is created, you lose purchasing power, and this simple phenomenon explains the wealth gap. I would argue that 
the solution to the wealth gap is not political. The solution to the wealth gap is to have a sound money system so everybody has a level playing field, so to speak. We have resources, as I said, available at the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates website. The, the web address is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. You can request more information there. You can download the app. Uh, I would encourage you to do that. Um, also, uh, this month, um, we have a newsletter, the You May Not Know report, that we are distributing uh, to our clients. Um, it will talk about what's going on economically and politically and give you some ideas as to what you might want to think about doing with your money. If you'd like to get a copy of that, simply go to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates website and shoot us an email, and we would be glad to mail you a copy when it is released. That's all the time I have for this week. Glad you decided to tune in. I'll be back again next week.